if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to take it up, take it out and open it up to John chapter 17, where we've been in last couple of weeks, and we will continue our time studying that together this morning. So John 17, verses 11 through 16 is what we're looking at this morning. And would you just uh, pray with me real quick before we dive into this message this morning? Father God, Lord, we um, come before you with our, um, not just our Bibles open, but also our hearts open and our ears and our minds, Lord. And we, we pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, that your son would be exalted in this place and that your people would be edified, would be encouraged um, by your word this morning, Lord. I pray that you would use it um, to shape us into the people that you have called us to be, um, Lord, and I just pray that this morning that, um, Lord, that you would um, just reveal yourself through your word. Um, we love you, and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, we're studying. First of all, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be able to be with you this morning to worship. Um, and uh, this is, as a, as a church, we've been studying the, what's called the high priestly prayer. It's really a sacred text. Um, all of the Bible is sacred, but there's a uniqueness to John 17 that really stands out, and it provides us a window into the very heart of Christ. And so very much so throughout the series, as we open up our Bibles and as we examine these words, we are peering into the heart of Christ. And we learn really a lot, a great deal about how the Son relates to the Father. We learn a great, uh, a great deal about just the nature of the Trinity, of God himself, and as he exists as the triune God. But we also learn a, a great deal about how God um, relates to his people, what he longs for his people, and um, specifically what he wants, what he's asking the Father for you and for me. And so last week, as we considered verses 6 through the first half of verse 11, really what we were examining was before Jesus got into this prayer, before he started petitioning and asking, making requests of the Father, he provided reasons that he was making requests to the Father for these people. And so really, hopefully, I mean, it's, it's a, we, we learn a great deal about Christ's heart for us, about the relationship of God. Um, but as we read this, we also learn a great deal about how to pray. This is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus that we have in the Bible, and it gives us a great understanding of how to pray. And so before Jesus is petitioning the Father on behalf of his people, he, he lays the groundwork. Here's why I'm asking for these people. And in doing so, we learn a great deal about how God has made us in relation to himself. Last week, we considered the, that, that, that his, his reasons for praying taught us a great deal about who we are, just our identity, taught us a great deal about our faith, and how we are a people who believe what God has said and what he's done. And then also it taught us a great deal about our calling, what God has, has commissioned and sent us into this world to do. And so this morning, one of the things that we, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. And if you remember one of the big ideas, sort of one of the banners over this text that we explored last week and discovered was that if you are in Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are his precious property. You belong to God Almighty. He looks at you and he says, mine. And that's how he'll look at you for eternity, okay? So you are, if you belong to Jesus, you are the precious property 
of God Almighty. And so as we, as we turn into, continue our study in John 17, with that in mind, we are the precious property of God. I want to start off this morning by asking you a simple question. What do you do with something that is precious to you? How do you treat something that is in your possession that you would call precious, that you cherish? How do you treat it? Perhaps it's a souvenir, maybe something you picked up when I was little, my mom used to go places and she would, oh, I don't know if people still do this or not, but she would buy little spoons. Is that a thing or am I just remembering, am I remembering wrongly? I don't know. But little spoons that like had, it wasn't shot glasses, okay? It was in the way my mom rolled. It was kind of like the Christian alternative to a shot glass is a small decorative spoon that says, you know, the place that you're at, right? That's my mom. Maybe, maybe it's a souvenir, something special to you, right? How, how do you treat souvenirs? Or, or maybe it's a special childhood toy. For our kids, we have special toys that were unique to each kid. I'm not going to put anybody on blast this morning, but each kid had kind of a unique toy that we, we've kind of tucked away and preserved and protected for them when they get older. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a video game that's really special to you. How do you treat something that's precious to you? Maybe it's a, a special recipe that you inherited or that you created, something that's precious. Perhaps it's a memory or a relationship. How do you treat these things? How do you treat things that, you, that belong to you that you say are precious? Now, growing up, I had um, two older brothers, and for you know, a good chunk of my childhood, we, had a, we all shared a room together, three of us. It's a small bedroom, but we all had, we were all in there, three beds together. And as you can imagine, with three boys growing up in a room, there wasn't a lot of like personal space. And I really feel bad for my older brother who was like, and I had the, you know, the privilege of being the youngest. So there was a good chunk of time, like they aged out of the room, right? So I actually had a room to myself because they were all moved out. Uh, but I feel really bad for my brothers who grew up with me, like just across the room for, you know, most of their <laughs> adolescence. But there was, no, there was no special personal space. There was really a lack thereof. So my dad would make these things called lock boxes. And I don't know if it was just an us thing or if they actually exist, but he would make a wooden box that just had like a lock on it. And each kid had their wooden box, and in their wooden box, they could just put whatever they wanted. But the, the purpose of the wooden box was, was to keep what was precious to you. Maybe it was toys. Maybe it was candy, you know, whatever belonged to you. Maybe it was a picture of a girl. Oh, no, I don't know. Girlfriend, you know, the yearbook, cat or something like that. Maybe something that you didn't want anybody else to get their hands on. You would, you would put it in that lockbox, and you would lock it up. Keep it safe, right? That is what you do with something that is precious to you. You keep it. That's what the lockbox was designed for, for you to keep something that was special to you. What we see in the text this morning is that ex is exactly what God does. How does God, if we are precious to God, how does God treat us? Well, what our text tells us this morning is simply this. He keeps you. If you belong to God and you are precious to him, which we discovered last week is true, then this morning we are given a tremendous amount of comfort in the simple fact that God, the Almighty God, keeps 
you and me. That's how he treats his beloved disciples. He keeps us. And so this morning, as we explore this text together, we'll see that Jesus has the power to keep us, and he has a purpose in our keeping. Okay, so two things that really should bring us, again, a great amount of comfort. Jesus has the power to keep us, and he has a purpose for us in our keeping. As we look at the text, we'll look at just sort of three simple moves. The first thing is we'll discover is this is the first request from our Lord Jesus to the Father. This is the first petition. The first thing that he asks the God the Father for is this. You see it right there in your text, in the text in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is what Jesus the Son is asking the Father to do, that he would keep his people. But not just that he would keep them, but that he would keep them in a very, very special way. Remember, they are his precious possessions. And Jesus is asking the Father that he would keep them, his people, in a very special way. You see it there in the text. It says, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Already we've seen that the Father has given to the Son a people. And and here we see that the the particular name of God has also been given to him. You see it in verse 12. He says, I kept them in your name. This is what Jesus was able to do. So the request is that God would keep these people, his people, the ones who belong to him, that he would keep them in that name which God had given to him. When the Father sent the Son into the world, he sent him for this exact purpose, to proclaim his name. We saw that last week in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. To sort of sum up his great mission, Jesus says, was that he came to a people for the purpose of proclaiming, declaring a name. The revelation or the manifestation, we considered this last week, of God's name is the special revelation of the person and the character of God himself. So in revealing or manifesting God's name, he's, he is revealing or showing who God is in the fullness of himself. So the the first petition that we see in this great, great prayer, the first thing that he asks for could be summed up in this, that we may be kept in the full realization of our relationship with God, that we may be kept in the full realization of our relationship with God. Now, it's important as we consider this request that this is not simply a request. It's a request, and then tagging onto that request, Jesus makes a very important claim that helps us better understand what he's really asking of the Father. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. So the thing he's asking the Father to do, Jesus is saying, while I was here with them, this is precisely what I did. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Then he says, I have guarded them. So really what we need to be asking ourselves is, what does it mean to be kept by God? What does that actually mean? look like? Well, there's two different words that Jesus uses here to help us understand what he's asking. The first is the simple word keep. 
This is the more comprehensive word, more comprehensive than guarded. There's, there's two words, keep and guarded. I, I kept and guarded them. So kept to keep is more comprehensive. It's, it's really best illustrated sort of throughout the Bible with this idea of a shepherd and the way that a shepherd keeps or cares for or tends his flock of sheep. This is what the shepherd's job is, to watch over his sheep, to feed his sheep, to always have an eye on his sheep, to care for them while they graze in the fields, to, to ensure that none of them go astray. I don't know if you saw this a couple of years ago. There was a video that kind of went viral. I don't know the location. I, it, by the looks of it, it looked like maybe it was in the Middle East. But it was, it was a picture. There was a video. The video started off with um, there, was, there was kind of this tr- very narrow trench that went a long distance. And the video started off, have you seen this, with a sheep that was like stuck in this trench. Its legs were up in the air. And what you could see is an individual grabbing the leg of the sheep. The sheep was wedged in this trench. And he was grabbing the leg of the sheep and he was lifting, trying to dislodge the sheep from the trench. And it took a little bit of effort and eventually he gave it a yank and the sheep bounded up. And in a minute, its feet or hooves, is that what the technical term is for a sheep's foot? The minute its hooves hit the ground, the sheep just started to bound along and do-do-do, and about five seconds later, thunk, right back into the trench it went, right? And you could just see the next move was that whoever that was was just, okay, here we go again, you know? And sort of the tag, the reason why I saw it is, is somebody said, this is basically like what discipleship is like. This is like my journey with Jesus, right? Constantly getting stuck. The Lord lifts me out just for me and my foolish ways to get stuck once again. But, but it provides for a sort of a picture of what a shepherd is and does. Has sort of the whole, what it means to keep the sheep is you have the whole sheep in mind. Whatever the conditions or the circumstances are, your eye is on the sheep and what Whatever the sheep needs, you provide. You, you move towards the sheep to help the sheep out. Constant care. It's what, it's what this word keep means. It's what it looks like. But there's another word that he uses, and he, he goes from a very broad understanding of what he's asking to a more narrowly defined understanding. It's the word guard. He guarded them. It's a much more, much more narrow focus. Guard simply means to protect against attack. Recognizing that there are enemies around, it's the shepherd's job specifically in keeping the sheep to ensure that they are protected from an enemy who would like to attack them. And as we, we read on, we see that, that this, is, this is essentially what God has done, is he has called us as his people to live in a world where, quite honestly, we are constantly under attack. In the text itself, it says, listen, there are temptations. There's a, there's a reality of the world that we, and that we live in, that this world is trying to constantly bring us into conformity, and we're constantly being tempted to look more like the world and less like Jesus. And Jesus is asking, guard them from that. I've placed them in the world, but they are not of the world. They stand apart from the world, just like Jesus himself did. And he's saying, guard them. Guard them, protect them from the constant temptation to just look like everybody around them. And he also specifically points out the the role of the evil one here. That the evil one is also attacking us constantly, trying to tempt us and lure us to, to, to not follow the ways of Jesus. And so his request is very simple to the Father. God, I kept them. 
I protected them. I'm leaving now. Your job is to keep them. Will you keep them? Will you keep them in your name? That's his request. Secondly, as we go throughout the text, we'll also see that he provides sort of for us reason or reason for us to, in light of this request, to have confidence that Jesus, that, that God is actually able to do what Jesus is asking him to do. Jesus claims that he kept his disciples and he's handing them back to the Father. As I have kept them, now you keep them. So as we consider, what does it look like to be kept? Do we actually have reason to have confidence that what Jesus is asking, God can do? Well, we consider how Jesus kept his disciples, provides for us really good reason to have confidence. This is what Jesus did when he was with the disciples. He kept them. So the next question you should be asking is, how did Jesus keep them? Well, really through a variety of ways. Jesus was a teacher. We know this to be true. Jesus taught God's word. He, he taught the disciples. And in a very real sense, the purpose of his instruction or his exhortation was to instruct them on their relationship to God and the nature of the new life that they have in Jesus. This is what he did when he preached to them the, the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this is what Jesus is doing in the chapters before this. He's instructing them on the way of life as a follower of Jesus. He's, he's teaching them. And certainly this teaching, providing instruction and setting up rails and expectations, and this is what the life that God has called you to looks like, certainly this is a way of Jesus keeping. They are kept by his teaching. And the same is true for us today. We, we open up God's word and we discover for ourselves what God has called us to. The life that God has, has, has called us to live. And, and, and we cannot discover that. We don't know that if we don't actively interact with this book on a regular basis. We are kept by his very word. It's, it's the reason why the word is at one of the center things of what we do on Sunday mornings is we open it up and discover it because by the power of his word, we are kept we're kept. If you long to know that you are kept and that you are, you are following Jesus the way that Jesus has called you to, but you don't make a regular practice of reading his word, my goodness, odds are stacked against you. He keeps us by the very power of his word. This is what Jesus did for his disciples. He taught them on a regular basis. In his interactions with the disciples, he taught them, but he also warned them. He also provided warning for his disciples. He didn't just offer them, and this is important for us to remember, warm, fuzzy, spiritual platitudes. That's not simply all that Jesus offered them, and it's not all that he offers us. In a very real sense, Jesus warned them on a regular basis. Jesus was real. He, he prepared for them prepared them to face the dangers and the difficulties that laid ahead of them on a regular basis. He warned them. In Luke 10, they had been out preaching and, and came back excited with all that had happened and all that they saw. Maybe you're familiar with the story. They came back 
It says the Bible says that they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were thrilled with what they saw God do through them. And Jesus certainly affirmed that work, but the next move that Jesus made was that he warned them. He he said, yes, y'all did some great stuff. God did it through you. Yes and amen. But do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice, don't make your joy contingent on how God works in and through your life, but rather the source of joy, what should give you cause to rejoice is the fact that your name is written in heaven for eternity. Because here's the deal, Jesus knows that there will be times in our life where we may question, is he really at work, right? And if our joy or purpose or meaning is only as strong as our recognition of of fruit that we see in our life, Jesus recognizes that there's times in your life where you may not see anything. And if your joy is contingent on that, then tough luck? Absolutely not. Jesus warns them. The source of their joy is the reality that their name is written in heaven for eternity. He warns them. Doesn't ensure that there's no pain in this life. It says, your joy, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. It's the source of our joy this morning as well. So Jesus teaches them. He rebukes them. This is all, remember, a way that Jesus keeps them. He also rebukes them. There's times when Jesus simply had to call them out, right, for being fools. Times when their actions and their words um, did not align with his kingdom priorities. They weren't consistent with the truth and the life that he was calling to. And, and so he rebukes them. We know that this is a way that God keeps us. He, he disciplines those whom he loves. God's word is very clear on this. He rebukes them. And this is an act of love. And it, sometimes in an effort to protect us, the truth is that discipline, rebuke, is necessary. It's necessary. So he, he teaches them. He, he warns them. He rebukes them. But above all else, we are kept. Jesus keeps his people simply by his power, by his very power. Above all, the primary way by which Jesus kept his disciples and the primary way by which you and I are kept is by the manifestation of his power. He himself stood between the disciples and the attacks of the world or the the evil one. His words to Simon Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Then he says in verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Ultimately, the reason that Jesus' disciples were kept is because Jesus himself intervened, stood between God and man, and revealed his power. He himself prayed 
that your faith may not fail. And of course, we've talked a lot about this. This is precisely what Jesus is doing for you and me right now. He lives to make intercession for us, praying continually for us. We see his keeping power as simply consider the circumstances of the crew that Jesus ran with. Consider those who followed him, their frailty and their proclivity towards sin. As we look at the individuals that Jesus, that are listening to Jesus pray at this very moment, the truth is what we know about them is that there's nothing exceptional. There's nothing uniquely special about these men. They were mostly uneducated, rather ordinary men, but they were placed in an extraordinary position. And it was because of their proximity to Jesus that these individuals could claim that he kept them. Think of the impulsiveness of Peter. You think of the skepticism of Thomas. Jesus himself was able to keep these individuals. Now, as you read on through the text, you see that he mentions an exception to the case in Judas. It says in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. So what Jesus is not saying is, I was able to keep all of these men, except I was unable to keep this individual. I was unable to keep him. Rather, the way we should read these words and understand them is that while Judas was definitely one of the 12, he was not one of the ones, as Jesus said earlier, who was given to him by the Father. He was not given to him by the Father. Judas is not an exception among the disciples. The reality is, is Judas is in a category entirely of his own. So don't look at that and think to yourself, well, he wasn't able to do it there. No, he never was one of those who he was to keep. Those who've been given to him, his, his keeping of these men through a variety of temptations and, and challenges was simply possible because of his strength, because of his power, because Jesus is who Jesus is. And in John 10, 28, we learn, this again should bring great comfort to us of the keeping power that Jesus has. In John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what Jesus offers us. A keeping that nobody can touch. Guarded and protected and kept. And there's nobody that can snatch us out of his hand. This, this should be the source of a great joy and comfort for us as his people. The same is true for us today. This is precisely what he offers us. So we consider sort of the request what Jesus is asking from the Father, looked at sort of the reason for our confidence, why we can believe that Jesus is actually, God's actually able to do this. Finally, let's consider the result. What result should this have in our life? And I want us to think about it in two categories. Now, if you remember, last week we considered why he's praying for them why these petitions? Why these requests? But in his grace, we also discover, we, we consider both the petitions and also the reasons. So last week we looked at the reasons. Our identity, the reason to, to glorify God in all that we do. The, the very fact, the reason why he's praying for them is because they needed prayer. He understood that their proclivity towards sin would cause them to need supernatural intervention, which he provided. They needed prayer. 
But here, as we consider the results of what this looks like being kept by Jesus in our life, it also gives us sort of two additional reasons why Jesus is praying for them. And the first is this. We see it in the text. Jesus is concerned for their unity. He's concerned for their unity. You see it in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Even as we are one. Now, we'll, as we consider, continue to, to study through John 17, we will learn, get into verse 20 to 26, we'll learn more and discuss more about sort of the nature of Christian unity. But all I want to point out this morning is that the Christian unity for Jesus is a top priority. Christian unity for Jesus is a top priority. Jesus is asking that the Father keep his followers, his people, in firm fidelity to the revelation of Jesus himself. The the purpose of such allegiance is that they may be one. He says, even as we are one, that they may be one. It's important to remember that Jesus has not, that God is not keeping them just as sort of individual units, individuals, but rather he's keeping them ultimately as a community, the very people of God. And and this is indeed the reason why it's such a priority for him. He tells us to keep them, that they they are one just as God, Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. Now, it's important to remember that that while unity is a top priority, it's actually just the the direct result of God's name being revealed to us as his people. His name being God's nature and his name being revealed to humanity. When we learn about the fullness of God through his name, we discover that this is a triune God. And the direct result of worshiping a triune God is that we are a people who are united not just to him, but also to one another. For Jesus, unity is an absolute, it's a necessity because this is who God is, the united triune God. And so Jesus wants them to be kept as one because him and the Father are one. You'll look ahead in verse 21 and you'll see that it comes up again, that they may all be one. And again, provides the same reason, just as you, Father, aren't in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a top priority for Jesus. And I don't, you could live with your head in the sand right now and still recognize that Christian unity is, is under attack maybe today more than it has ever been, at least in my lifetime. It feels like everywhere we turn that we are being polarized and divided among one another. And as we look at God's word in John 17 and we peer into Jesus' heart, we can clearly see that that. Our unity is a top priority for Jesus. And so the many ways that we are constantly torn apart in this world, Jesus says, let it not be because of the very nature of who I am, a united triune God. And if this is a priority, Christian unity is a priority for Jesus, then guess what? Christian unity should be a priority for us as his people. I just want you to stop and think about this for a second. See, here's the deal. Oftentimes, at least in the West, churches can become so territorial. They really can be. 
And, and certainly there are good reasons to divide, like um, t- reasons, doctrinal reasons that we have different sets of beliefs. It makes total sense for us to maybe not fellowship together because we fundamentally believe different things about truth. Certainly there's an understanding and a reason for some division. But if you just look at the landscape of our church today, the division and, and the way that oftentimes we view even Christians in this community who go to a different church. Let me just ask you, and hopefully this is, for me, this is a unique burden. I think especially you get into verse 21 and you recognize that when there's a power that when, when Jesus' people come together, maybe in a world, in a, in a way that the rest of the world can't, does not understand, longs for unity. When we present something else to the world that they long for, but they have no ability to achieve in and of themselves, the result is that people will see God's glory revealed, that they will be unable to deny his power and his presence. And so if ever there's been a time when the church of Jesus Christ needs to come together, it's now, whether it's social and political or, or racial lines that have divided us or, or sometimes third level sort of doctrinal issues that have no reason to really divide us and have us look negatively at one another. If ever there's a time for us to come together, it's now because it's a priority for Jesus and there's power in it. I'm so thankful for Brother Dave and the class that he led here to be able to think about these are real issues that we can have differences of opinions on, but they should not be dividing us, that we should work for unity because Jesus died, the Bible says, to create one new man. It was such a priority for Jesus that he gave up his life on the cross for it. And so I just want to challenge you this morning is how do you promote Christian unity? What's your first response when you learn of somebody who maybe in, the, in your workplace or at school or wherever that professes faith in Jesus and goes to a different church? What's your first response? It, it should be, praise God. <laughs> praise God. You, you profess Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? How, often, how do we think about our brothers and sisters at different churches in this community, those who go to Veritas or Good News or Kingdom Center right around the corner or or Grace? One ancient hope, Genesis, on and how do we view, do, we ever, do you ever pray for your brothers and sisters at these other churches? We should, we should, especially today in this community. Christian unity is a priority. What does it look like in your life? Jesus has some very strong words to say to those who intentionally divide his church. Very strong words. Second reason, sort of result, is not just is Jesus concerned for our unity, and I'll close with this one, he's also concerned for their joy, for our, for our joy. Look at verse 13. It says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It should not fall flat on us that moments before Jesus will be arrested and executed, one of the top concerns for him, for you and me, is that his joy would be our joy. That we would be a people who are marked by joy. This should not fall flat on us. As we consider the great task to glorify God in this life, the very reason he has placed us on this planet, in this world, 
we are oftentimes to think of sort of the, the Christian life as simply a matter of duty or allegiance. Certainly, allegiance is important. Certainly. Oftentimes, we think you just put your nose down, you suck it up, and you just do it. And sometimes, if you were to look at people's lives, or sometimes even our own lives, and consider what that looks like, the truth is, be the first to confess, looks utterly boring. Jesus has not called you to an eternal life of boredom. He is not. And I'll just confess, sometimes my life, that's the way I view Christianity sometimes, just seems boring. I'm tempted, just like you, to look at the rest of the world thinking, man, they look like they're having a lot of fun. Tempting. Jesus offers us the very joy that our hearts long for. The joy that was set before him. He wants that joy to fill our hearts and lives. He wants to deploy a people across this great planet who experienced and have tasted and who live the joy of Jesus. The joy that we were eternally destined and will one day experience forever. But we don't have to wait. This is the good news of the gospel. We don't have to wait to our, for our death to get a glimpse of this joy. We can live it now. And I'm just sorry, but the truth is nobody looks at us in our boring Christian lives and thinks to themselves, let me get some of that. It doesn't work like that. Now, what I'm not saying is fake it. Slap a smile on your face. That's not at all what Jesus has called us to. Christian understanding of joy and what he wants us to know in our very bones is that this life is not easy. Some of us have seen the fragility of human life just even this week in a way that maybe we were completely unprepared for. The life he's called us to is filled with suffering. Persecution does come. Death is certain. But the joy he offers you and me this very morning and throughout eternity is a joy that even in the face of great suffering and pain, makes all of life completely worth it. It's a joy that can't be taken from us. It's a joy that sits down so far in our soul that even when we look at death in its face, we are able to say, we're able to say, Lord Jesus, this is worth it because of what you give me. And folks, that joy nobody can take, nobody can touch. So Jesus prays for our joy in John 17, that we would know and taste and feel what real joy truly is. In just a few moments, he doesn't just want to inspire us with joy. 
words about joy, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to accomplish the very act that provides for us access into his eternal presence and fullness of joy. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our primary source of hope and joy in this life and the next. And Jesus calls us his own. He dies in just a few moments on the cross in our place, safeguarding our eternal destiny. And we now, though a sinful, fallen, undeserving people, are reconciled to the almighty, all-holy God of the universe. This truth, quite honestly, should put a little more pep in our step, people. He, he has called you his own and he wants you with him forever. And there's nothing that you have to do to achieve that. It's all been done. All you have to do is receive it. So it's the open hands of faith that we extend to him. And when Jesus sees those hands open, he places in them a gift that can never be taken from us and will never stop giving to us, the gift of eternal life. Church, we have so much to be joyful for. Has this, been, has this week been hard for our church especially? It has. It has. But we have a joy that transcends all of the pain and misery that this world throws at us. And for that, we will rejoice. We rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that just for the gospel of Jesus. And we think as we reflect on his heart before he goes to the cross and ultimately what he accomplishes at the cross, I pray that you would help us to be a people who embody that truth, whose interactions are just unusual in this world with other people, who, who face difficulty, loss, pain, brokenness, in a way that this world can't understand but desperately wants for themselves. Help us to be some of the weirdest people that this world has ever seen because we have the very joy of Jesus in our lives and it works its way out into a united people that you call your own. God, we are so glad that we get to call you our God. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.